Good morning. Before we turn to God's word in Luke 6, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for the spiritual understanding that you have given us to be able to sing that song with sincerity. That you have indeed opened our eyes and you've allowed us to see what you have done and are doing. God, we pray for continued sight. As we continue to to find new glimpses of glory and new areas of discipleship that we have neglected, God, we pray for a full-orbed understanding of what it means to love and follow you. You are penetratingly specific about what it means to love you and follow you. And God, sometimes it's easier to turn away from your commands or to generalize them than to to fully hear. We pray for sight. We want to see all that you've commanded of us. We, We even want to see our own sinfulness so that we might magnify your cross, so that we might repent and turn and and live pure lives before you and others. So do that by the power of your Spirit and through your Word we pray and for His sake. Amen. The life of Jesus was shocking. And it was shocking because He blew up the former boundaries of what it meant for love to pursue people and to redeem He was the creator, become human, the infinite, choosing limitation, the eternal subjecting himself to death, the almighty choosing weakness. The extent of God's love in Christ is supernatural and revolutionary. It's a love we're still exploring, still figuring out, still mining, still grappling with, still being challenged by. It's still pushing those of us who are in Christ to to forsake our lives and find freedom in releasing our lives and not preserving them. We're learning day by day to do what Paul says, to die every day or to be always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Before this definitive and pinnacle act of love in the ministry of Christ, which was the death and resurrection, He taught this subject of love to his disciples. We started looking at that last week in Luke. In the Sermon on the Plain, he said that those who are opting to pay love's cost and live out this love, they're fortunate. Even if that's not reflected on the world's scoreboard, they are. And last week, he even said that the extent of his love reaches beyond those who are good. It extends to people like us to people who are his enemies. The love of Christ extends beyond reciprocation, beyond the natural scratch-my-back-and-I'll-scratch-yours kind of love. It creates a generosity that removes pre-qualifying questions that you and I ask when we're deciding whether or not to love a person. Questions like, have they hurt me before? Or are they in a position to pay me back? Jesus does not say, as others have done to you, do to them. 
he says these incredible words, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And this counterintuitive command, it requires a massive motive. Some way that's going to undergird and empower this command. And we find that motive in last week's passage in Luke 6, verse 35 and 36. I want to read it briefly. It says this. Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So this massive motive that Jesus knows he needs in order to make these commands, we find in those verses, and they point backwards and forward. It points backward to our adoption, when those of us who are in Christ were made sons and daughters of God. We are living proof that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. But it also points forward, right, to his generous divine reciprocation when he will reward those who bear the family resemblance and act in mercy. I don't know about you, but after hearing Jesus' words last week, uh, they cried out for application, for what does this look like? What would it, would it sound like to be merciful to my enemy or to be loving to my enemy? Where would I start? Maybe you would be most comfortable if you kept the teaching of Jesus vague, right? Like commit yourself to the platitude, but be less specific. But Jesus doesn't let you off. He keeps explaining what he means in our passage this morning. In Luke 6, 37 through 45, he uses four different images to flesh out what practiced mercy looks like and doesn't look like. So, a bit of a warning before we proceed. Divine reciprocation works in both directions. And by that I mean he rewards those who extend his mercy. But he also judges those who delight in passing judgment and sentences on others. This morning he criticizes the critical. And he warns those who are nursing grudges. Let's read Luke 6, 37 through 45. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. A quick road map before we start. I think the overarching principle we find in 37 and 38, and that's the extension and consequence of mercy. He then takes that principle and applies it through two images, this blind guide and the log and the splinter. And then he concludes with an image that I think sums it all up and leaves us in need of Jesus by pointing to the heart of judgment. So let's take each of those sections in turn. Let's look at his overarching principle in 37 and 38, mercy's extension and consequence. I don't know if you're experiencing this, but at the end of January, normally my my email box starts getting full of things about tax information and financial summaries and all this stuff abounds. And before you know it, sure enough, we are in tax season again. And for this group, there are probably different reactions to that reality every year, right? Some of you have been, you know, withholding very little for the year and you know that you've got a big bill coming and you're kind of groaning at the thought of what's to come. Others, it's a happy time because you've been overpaying throughout the year and you know that a refund is on its way. Tax withholding, as odd as it is, I think is a decent image to explain what's going on in 37 and 38. There's a contrast between those who hold back mercy and choose to criticize and condemn, and then there are those who have been forgiving and generous, and a heavenly audit is assured. And there will be a reckoning for this withholding or this overpayment. There's four commands we find in 37 and 38. Two commands are emphatic don'ts. This is for those who don't extend mercy. And there are two do's which do extend mercy. And they're meant to be understood together as a contrast. So first, Jesus says, judge not and condemn not. What does he mean by this? These words you probably know are often ripped from their context and misused and abused in so many ways in political campaigns and social efforts and all kinds of things. And some use this first to justify a hands-off approach to everything. As if the problem with judgment is judgment itself, not the person doing the judging. Even obvious social norms and pressures are being called into question nowadays because of the fear of being judgmental. You've probably run into that. So is that what Jesus meant? It's important to remember that words have habitats. They have environments. And those environments dictate to us their meaning. Okay? So if we talk of keys to the car, we know it means one thing. If a commentator in the Super Bowl later on talks about the keys to the game... We know that's a different thing. And the way we know those are different is because they have different habitats. They have different contexts. And that's what we have and what we need to do here in interpreting this verse. What is the habitat of the command to judge not? You can also do things like 
look at how the biblical author uses that word in their book. Or look at how the rest of Scripture uses that word. And we'll do that too. So this word for judge has a wide variety of meanings in the New Testament. It can mean to sue in a legal process. It can mean to select or to reach a decision or to make a judgment or to find fault or to criticize. So the habitat is going to be important. The first clue for what judge here means is that it's paired with the word condemn. Those are meant to go together. To condemn means to pass a verdict of guilty. Okay? It's not just judgment. It's to reach the conclusion and to hold a person under that guilty sentence. And this pushes the word judge more, more towards an unhealthy or an extreme sense that we're familiar with culturally of passing harsh judgments or having a critical attitude. That's the first clue. The second clue is the contrast. What's the contrast to the two things we're not supposed to do? To forgive and give. If judgment is this unhealthy variety, a kind of holding people under their sin, then forgiveness, which is releasing someone from the deserved judgment, makes for a really great contrast, right? Someone in First Things mentioned that making judgments is necessary in the process of forgiveness because repentance assumes admitting that harm or sin has occurred. So the contrast shows us that this is an unhealthy sense of judgment, not the, the good variety that we find in the rest of Scripture. Lastly, the rest of the text itself assumes that judgments are good and necessary. Part of Jesus' incentive, we see, for commanding us not to judge is that we will receive a judgment in like in the future. So it doesn't make sense to say that judgment is bad because God will judge you for it. Jesus goes on to encourage them to make judgments like don't follow blind guides and, and help a person with the splinter out of their eye. Those things require making judgments. So those three clues help us to see that what's meant here is an overly critical attitude, a harsh sense of being judgmental towards others. And we find this in the rest of the Gospel of Luke and Scripture. So just in the next chapter in 743, Peter admits that those who are forgiven more love more. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. Later on in chapter 12, the Pharisees, they can judge the weather, but they can't interpret the times. And Jesus asks them, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right, assuming that they should? And we find the necessity of, of judging, of making differentiation and, and discerning between two things is so important in the rest of Scripture, right? When you see that in the, new, the rest of the Bible, there's, there's discipline or commanded by Jesus in Matthew 18, to practice a, a careful and redemptive form of judgment within the church. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, when he's talking about this extreme case of flagrant sin in the body, asks this, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We're to judge potential leaders. There's a list of qualifications. I mean, that's a judgmental thing if you think about it. But we need that kind of judgment. That's a good form of judgment. But there is a danger that Scripture also warns us against when it comes to judgment. Because notice, those examples I gave you, whether it's discipline in the church or qualifications for an elder, those things are, are mediated or given to us ultimately by our King. 
So we, in those exercises, are actually practicing a judgment that He has endorsed and He has prescripted to us. But Scripture says we have to be careful with judgment and we're, we're not allowed to judge just on our own. We're not to be independent contractors of God's judgment, you could say. So in Romans 14, we're not to pass judgment on one another on secondary matters. We're not supposed to make judgments based on appearance. We saw in the book of James. We're told to suspend ultimate judgment and leave that for the Lord and to entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. So it's complicated. But what Jesus is referring to here is a harsh and critical attitude or spirit. And Jesus is a great example of the balance of this uh, biblical judgment that I'm talking about. Because during his earthly ministry, he reiterated the necessity of judgment. But he suspended the immediate judgment that he would bring in time in obedience to the Father. He left it for the right time and place. Thank God that Jesus did not bring judgment with him immediately, but would redeem in that final judgment. So, what are we not supposed to do in Luke 6? Jesus is saying, don't pick people apart. Don't hold a grudge and withhold mercy. Get rid of the hopeless bitterness that finds what's wrong and ignores what's right. Don't be incredulous or proud or get stuck in the how-can-they-be-so-ridiculous kind of thinking or talking. Stop delighting in wrongness. Rather, hope for release and redemption. It's so easy to to make off-the-cuff smug remarks. As a person who thinks on their feet, it's, it's a struggle at times for me to hold my tongue. It's so easy to go down this road. Andrew Peterson caught this in a, in a verse of a song he wrote. He said this, It's so easy to cash in these chips on my shoulders. So easy to loose this old tongue like a tiger. It's so easy to let all that bitterness smolder. Just to hide it away like a cigarette lighter. It's easy to do. And Jesus provides the contrast to the two commands to not judge by saying to forgive and to give. In other words, give like God does. God's measurements are exact and yet gracious. There is a promised recompense here that brings joy to those who release other people from deserved punishment. And there's a fear for those who are going to hold people under the water of their sin. He says what you give out is what you get. The recipients of mercy give mercy. He does this in verse 38 by describing and using language of the marketplace. Look at what he says. Given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. What is that talking about? Well, it's, it's, it's using the image of the marketplace when grain or a good was measured in a basket or in the fold of a person's garment. Or there are different ways you can do that. Right? You can leave, leave a little air in there so that the person's paying for less product, like a, a bag of chips like on the grocery aisle that's you know, two-thirds empty, and for some reason it's $9 and... You can kind of go that way with it. Or, when they put it in the basket, they can, they can give it a good shake, right? They can push it down to make room for more, and they can give an exact, an exacting measurement where the, the customer can leave knowing with confidence, I received a full basket or a full measure 
of this. And even to the point of spilling over, right? This is the way that God's, God's generosity in giving is exact and generous. And then Jesus brings all these things, these verse 37 and 38, into high definition when he says this last phrase, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is part of the incentive to not go down the hypercritical road that judgment comes full circle. If you condemn others, your actions will be condemned by the true judge. The way that we treat other people impacts how God judges us. Now, this is not saying if you judge with a critical spirit, God will judge you with a critical spirit and in an unrighteous way. Okay? This is saying if you judge others with a critical spirit or go over the top with it, God, the true judge, who knows the heart and motive, will judge you for pretending to do his job. It will come back around. Now, this is not the heaven or hell type of judgment, I don't believe. I think it's related to the judgment of works. Well, each person will uh, be rewarded or judged or condemned for what they've done in this life. We, we reap what we sow. And some of our actions, the Scriptures say, will be consumed like hay or wood or straw. Right? They'll be worthless. They'll be wasted. While others will be revealed to be lasting and enduring like gold and silver through the fires of judgment. What is the implication for 37 and 38? How does it intersect with our lives? I think it's through asking an obvious question, which, which is, what measure do you use? What measure do you use? Are you quick with the trigger? How generous are you with mercy? If people judged you the way that you judged them, what would your response be? How would you feel about it? In a room like this, some of you are being given grace to work through great evils that have been done to you. The only way that I could credibly suggest that forgiveness is possible is to point to the mercy that you and I have received from Jesus himself. Do not take me to be saying that I am belittling the size or the scope of the sin that has been done to you. Each of us, though, has received more mercy than you will ever be able to give. What measure do you use? Going on in verses 39 through 40, Jesus gives us the first application and tells us to unfollow the unmerciful. Here's what he says. He also told him a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus is now going to apply this principle in a series of pairs throughout the rest of our passage. And these verses show us what leader or rabbi is worth following. And he starts with an obvious question. Can a blind man lead a blind man? The answer is, well, technically yes. Practically, no, Right? Why? Because they'll both end up in a pit, Jesus says. They'll end up in trouble. The danger that's ahead is unseed by the guide who is spiritually blind 
or hardened. Think of it in terms of a factory. You've got a factory that makes little gadgets, and those gadgets come out of molds. And these molds must be kept in pristine order because, as you know, if a mold gets cracked or if a mold is tarnished in some way, what does it mean? It means all the products on the conveyor belt right, are going to take on the shape of that mold. In verse 40, Jesus makes it clear that students are molded into the likeness of their teacher. Imitation is part of how God designed discipleship or training to work, both for good and for bad. And the perfect mold is Jesus, but he isn't the only mold. And spiritual blindness is dangerously transferable. And on both sides of the Sermon on the Plain, there are Pharisees waiting eager students. And are they going to be practiced mercy extenders? Because they'll make better leaders if they do that. Or are they going to be the caustic type, those quick to criticize? And leaders like that draw the self-righteous to themselves. So blind guides not only endanger themselves, they endanger those who are following them as well. This is an extension of the principle that he's just laid out. Avoid the hypercritical as a guide. He continues fleshing this out in the second application in 41 and 42 in what I'll call his ministry to the blind. He shows this group of disciples the ineffectiveness of spiritual blindness and the essential nature of self-awareness. He knows that critical attitudes and hypocrisy are often partners together. And so the critical attitude he's talked about in 37 and 38, he knows are oftentimes coupled with hypocrisy. And so he presents this hilarious scenario where he introduces this man who has a huge beam sticking out of his eye, who is claiming to be in a position to help a person who's just a little, got a little dust particle or a little uh, piece of, you know, uh, straw or wheat or a splinter in his eye. Distorting reality is just silly, right? To miss the obvious and notice the minuscule. I don't know if you remember an episode from Seinfeld a long time ago. I'll admit to watching that and enjoying that show. Um, But George Costanza in one episode was struggling with his vision, and he opened the refrigerator and took out an onion and took a big bite out of this onion. And you could tell he really didn't intend to pull out the onion. He thought it was an apple, but he couldn't see. And so he's trying to kind of sell the fact that he really wanted to eat an onion. And so there's this whole dialogue that's kind of funny. And then at the end of the scene, what's funny is he kind of looks and, is that a dime over there? And he walks 20 feet and picks a dime off the ground that he could could kind of see. And so it's this contrast of kind of missing the obvious, but noticing the minuscule. And these silly examples, they, they show us that influence is not just words, right? Our actions, our lives, who we are, how we live, those are folded into being influential. So if there's a P.E. teacher who promotes health, but whose life habits are terrible, that's hard to buy. If your financial advisor is filing for bankruptcy and asking you for a loan all the time, that's a red flag, right? There's something built into this that we just instinctively know. Now, what this image is not saying is that the difference between these people is that one has sin and the other doesn't. Notice that both have sin. 
One is just aware of it, and the other seems to be oblivious to it. It's also uh, not to say that specks of dust or little things that end up in our eye aren't important to deal with, right? I don't know about you, but I feel like life is on hold if I have something in my eye, right? You're trying to find a sink or you're trying to get it resolved. So both of these people need help getting things out of their eyes. What is it saying? Well, bringing perspective to others assumes that you have considered yourself and are paying as much attention, if not more, to your own sins as to the sins of other people. These people, they're called brothers in this setting, seem, it should have a relationship where there's perspective given in both directions, but for some reason, it's not being given in one, one of their cases. And hypocrisy has been distorting our vantage point from the very beginning, right? From the garden. This is how we roll. (laughs) We are practiced reality distortioners. And we often want to see what we want to see. And so we're selectively blind to things. Why does this happen? How can something so ridiculous, if if you're at least self-aware in some degree, how can it be so common, even that you and I do this often. I think it relates back to the golden rule that Jesus mentioned earlier and a a failure to apply the golden rule. We are quick to excuse our sin because we don't feel its effects, right? Our sin radiates out and oftentimes hurts others or harms others or irritates others, and we can be blind to that. But when other people sin and we feel that irritation, When our wills are thwarted and our feelings are hurt, that rises to the level of visibility, right? We see it. We want to deal with it. And so it's a failure to apply the golden rule. Jesus is saying, start with yourself and you won't be like that blind guide that leads people into the ditch. Practice honest introspection. Subject yourself to scrutiny. Scripture tells us how to do that and how to approach surfacing the sins of other people. And wherever you find correction in the Scripture, there's often a little caution sign by it. We must correct with care, mindful of our own problems. And what has the greatest likeliness to be received? Correction is other-focused and other-driven. Passages, a few of them, even point out that we are to watch ourselves as we try to bring correction to others, like Galatians 6 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spiritual or spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 1 Timothy 4 16, which was one of my passwords for a couple couple years in a row because I just I wanted to remember this. It's no longer, so don't try to access my bank account. But Paul tells Timothy earlier in this, this setting to set an example for them, and then he says to Timothy, keep watch on yourself and on the teaching. It's because of this imagery that Jesus points us to of the log and the splinter. And so what are the implications of these two images which kind of come together to say a similar thing? And that's this. Careful who you follow. Careful how you lead. Careful how you follow. Careful how you lead. Sometimes we confuse cockiness and confidence. 
Those who are quick to denounce and take a stand and mock and seem like leader types often can be blind guides. Being uncharitable rubs off really easily. I can remember listening to certain preachers when I was younger in Christ, and I was, I was young and full of zeal and full of great ideas that no one had thought of before. And I can remember hearing them and thinking that, that the more uh, controversial, the more someone was willing to name names, the more serious and committed they were. That, that was kind of the measure of spiritual maturity. The more they criticized and the more they tore other people down, the more devoted they were. And I happily joined their scorched earth society and listened to that for too long. But after a while, I started to see how much easier it was to attack what was bad than to live and promote what was good. And as I read about the fruit of the Spirit or passages like today's, I became less impressed with the self-righteous, I would say, and proud we're so willing to denounce because it just doesn't resonate with the Jesus way. Humility and self-awareness don't seem like leadership qualities, but according to Jesus, they are actually the ones who know where the pitfalls are. They are practiced log removers. And so they are positioned to carefully and cautiously remove specks and splinters. And like most things in the kingdom of Christ, right, the way down in humility is the way towards greater influence. But it's really easy to be self-deceived. Because you can't see yourself, right? And so God has appointed mirrors to interrupt our self-deception that come to us in the form of reading his word with an open heart and receptivity. Praying and regularly confessing And recognizing our sin to God and others. To being in a truth-telling community that's willing to correct with caution. And where you are willing to risk and be vulnerable. Following leaders and surrounding yourself with people who are practiced and who exercise humility. Jesus, I think, is saying, careful who you follow. Careful how you lead. Before we look at the last image, notice what these verses before have in common. You might read this and think, what are all these images swirling around? Well, they all have something in common. They are all about our posture towards sin, whether that sin is ours or the sins of other people. And Jesus is saying how we treat other people and their sin reveals a lot about our own spiritual condition. If we withhold mercy or we extend mercy... That's telling. And so he concludes with this last image in verses 43 through 45. And this image, I think, has a different role than the others. It shows us that this lack of mercy or or humility are symptomatic of a deeper problem. He gets to the heart of the matter. Our attitudes and actions, the kind of fruit that our life bears, indicate what kind of nature our heart is has, whether good or bad. One author says, in Luke's pre-Freudian world, 
a person's inside is accessible not through his or her psychology, but through his or her social interactions. People, like trees, are known through what they produce. Apple trees produce apples. Fig trees produce figs. You will produce what you are, not what you aren't, is what Jesus is saying. There is an inescapable relationship between our actions and thoughts and words and our nature. He describes it as the overflow of the heart. Now, this is a really obvious thing. You know that apple trees make apples, but it's almost less obvious in the realm of the human heart. We can often excuse or rationalize our actions, can't we? We can tell ourselves that our words are actually divorced from our hearts. And this, this scenario was a fluke. It was an exception. It was not actually who I really am. And in so doing, we deceive ourselves because of being tired or having an off day or not really meaning that or just joking or whatever it would be. And just like that, this opportunity to see the insides and our motivation is lost. Well, Jesus has called this group to a radically different way of thinking and living, and he has pressed on this area of human pride that I'm hoping that you can relate to because we so often cave into this. And he's been describing bad fruit, right? What a a judgmental heart sounds like and acts like and is motivated by and how utterly ridiculous it is when you see it. And he's doing this to drive home a point. And now that that he's been talking about all this bad fruit that we can relate to, he's bringing us to a point of desperate need. Because you and I cannot change our natures. Right? We can feel convicted by what he's saying in these images, and we can know that we are off, but we can't do anything about our natures without outside help. In the end, I think Jesus is saying there is a much worse problem than just being overly critical or judgmental. And he's caught us. Now, those who don't follow Jesus can identify, hopefully, with delighting in a person's failures and realizing, yeah, that's telling me something about the nature of the tree. That fruit is. For those who are following Jesus, he doesn't want us to lose the security of our salvation every time that we sin in this way, but he does want us not to be spiritually stuck up. And so he's warning us and helping us to see the danger of hypocrisy and being overly critical. And so in the end, what this all surmounts to is it leaves us totally and utterly dependent on him to do a work that only God can do through the gospel of transforming and actually making us a new creation. That's what this image of fruit and trees demands. We need to be restored. And here's an opportunity for us to rejoice in the hope of the gospel, right? That Jesus, after he's kind of laid out this case, this convicting case, and then brings us to this point of need, is then going to step into that need and become a curse and take mockery and be sinned against in ways that are unspeakable, horrific, and unparalleled. So that you and I, who are so quick to pull the trigger and so quick to point out what's wrong, 
can be transformed into generous people who forgive and who are hesitant to criticize and who are quick to be generous. This is the hope of the gospel. And so the implication is obvious. What do your thoughts and actions reveal about your heart? What is the condition of your heart towards your own sin and the sins of other people? Do you buy this? This intertwining of heart and action that Jesus says, they're they're stuck together. They're inescapably partners. And what are ways that we try to disconnect those things? In the end, this passage calls for serious, sobering introspection. To be honest with ourselves. Maybe involve others in who you trust to be honest with you as well. So what is he saying in a bullet point fashion and we'll be done? Start with your own sins. Don't condemn others. Extend mercy and generosity. How you judge or forgive will shape how God judges and forgives you. Demonstrate lowly humility and be influential in the kingdom. And you produce what you are. God is able to make you a new creation in Christ. I'd like to conclude in prayer by reading a section of 1 Corinthians 13, which I feel like does a great job of explaining what we are to strive towards. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are sobering words and images. We laugh at the the silliness of a log in the eye, and yet when we realize what you're teaching, we can identify with how absurd self-righteousness and hypercriticism is. In an age of outrage, God, replace these carnal instincts by the Spirit of God with humility and gentleness and sacrifice. Shape us according to your word in 1 Corinthians 13, which says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Father, we thank you that Jesus modeled those things for us and is our example. Help us to follow in his steps, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.